My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. And welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Jackie McVicker. A word you hear a lot in the context of struggles for social justice is solidarity. At its most basic, it just means that a group of people, a group of co-workers, a group of neighbors, have each other's back, that they recognize they'll all end up farther ahead if they stick together. Whatever the context, solidarity is something that takes work. You can't just assume it, you have to create it and enact it. There are some contexts, though, that make enacting meaningful solidarity in politically appropriate ways even trickier. For instance, differences in experience and differences in power among those attempting to create solidarity can be a real barrier. Physical distance can also make creating solidarity more challenging, because if you're far away, it can be very difficult even to know about struggles you wish to support, let alone to act to support them in meaningful ways. When it comes to activists in rich countries like Canada acting in solidarity with people in the Global South, both of those complications can be at work. It's tempting, therefore, to not bother, to say, well, yes, the struggles going on in Guatemala or Honduras or Brazil are important, and we wish people in those countries well, but we've got our own struggles going on here, and we're just not going to focus on them. What that stance fails to reckon with, however, is that political responsibility does not stop at borders. The fact is, we're already connected to struggles in many parts of the Global South because of involvement by the Canadian state and Canadian corporations in various things that popular movements in those countries are trying to change. One major component of this is the extensive involvement by Canadian corporations in mining and other kinds of resource extraction projects that are harming communities around the world and that popular movements are working hard to oppose. Jackie McVicker is a member of the Atlantic Regional Solidarity Network, a network of individuals and organizations in Atlantic Canada acting in solidarity with the peoples of Latin America, Central America, and the Caribbean. Though the issues are immense and their capacity is more limited than they would like, they do what they can to support the struggles by the peoples of these regions for self-determination and to act to create change in the Canadian context that will be beneficial to those struggles. Founded in the heyday of Latin American solidarity organizing in the 1980s, the network includes both representatives of funded organizations, McVicker herself works for an international NGO called Breaking the Silence, as well as grassroots groups and individual activists. McVicker talks with me about the Atlantic Regional Solidarity Network, about Canadian complicity in global injustice, particularly when it comes to extractive industries, and about the challenges of international solidarity. We spoke by Skype from Nova Scotia. My name is Jackie McVicker and I live in Nova Scotia part of the year and I live in Guatemala the other part of the year and I'm an activist, a feminist, a mother, a partner and I care a lot about our world and I care for there to be justice in our world. 
The Atlantic Region Solidarity Network is a network that was created probably close to 30 years ago when Latin American Solidarity Movement was growing because of the injustice that was happening there, the violence that was happening in Latin America, Central America specifically. It's a network of people, of organizations, of academics, of students, and longtime solidarity activists who want to know what's happening in the region. I also work as a coordinator in my paid work with a maritime-based solidarity network called Breaking the Silence that works specifically in Guatemala, but also looks at regional issues that are cross-border. When I went to university, I was maybe radicalized in the sense that I began to see the world in a different way. Growing up in a rural community, I cared about people and I saw injustice as I was growing up, but I didn't have the language or the understanding of how or why it was happening. I could see my own community poverty and so I might volunteer to, you know, help people, but it was hard for me until I got to university to really explore how structural injustice impacts people depending on class and race and gender and many other reasons. When I was in university, I studied international development studies and a minor in environmental studies, and I'm grateful that I had professors that helped me grow and learn a lot in terms of that analysis. When I graduated from university, I ended up working with an NGO in Halifax, and while I was there, I had the opportunity to go to Guatemala with Breaking the Silence on a delegation, and that was the first time I'd been in Latin America and Central America, and it was an opportunity for me to connect with people and see how injustice was happening in their lives, and also flip the idea that I think I had probably when I was growing up around, you know, charity models where we can do something to help and we have the answers. And it was so apparent to me how people in their own communities were struggling for justice every day. It was really empowering for me to also see that and think about like, how am I part of this struggle? And also the connections between North-South struggles and how they're interrelated became also much more clear to me. This was 2004, and it was the first time that I heard about, for example, Canadian mining companies working in Guatemala and in the region, and really started to examine how the extractive industry was having a role and what role they were playing in places like Guatemala. That was a big part of my political formation, and I think from there, just deepening that learning and deepening that understanding of the interconnectedness between how policies and trade agreements and laws that we create here in the North have really serious impacts for people here, but also extreme impacts sometimes for people living in the Global South. Arson was created, we had a, a gathering a few years ago, kind of an anniversary gathering to talk about how it started and who was there and why. And I think a lot of work was happening in the 80s and 90s in Nicaragua, especially, and in El Salvador and also in Guatemala. Arson ebbs and flows where energy is and where issues seem most important or everything's important, but where there's energy and where work is being done. It started out as a network, just people gathering to meet, to talk about what was happening. And I think also at that time, there were people doing international solidarity and justice work who was part of their paid work. You know, it was kind of this era of a lot of solidarity and justice networks that actually had paid staff 
And I think it laid kind of a foundation for them to meet. Arson was created as a space to share what was happening and think of ways to collaborate and work together and support each other and foster that connection between the Maritimes and Latin America. So I think it was a combination of having people that this was their work and then enabling them to engage more people to come together and talk about what the issues are, think about ways of collaborating, and also being part of a counter-narrative that was happening around globalization. And, you know, at that time, how people were talking about all the great benefits of that and thinking about how to create a counter-narrative, a counter-media, and supporting some of those initiatives. So that's how I think Arson got started. And it's changed, but not, I don't think, dramatically since then. There was 10 or 15 years ago this dip, this period of transition. The Harper government cut a lot of NGOs doing solidarity work, and that affected a lot of people. And I think it affected a lot of NGOs. But I think also in that 10 years, a lot of groups had to reimagine how they worked. And so maybe the good that did come out of that was helping solidarity groups look at themselves and think about, like, how do we do this work? still in a meaningful way, in a way that we want to be working, but we have to look at our resources in a different way. And Arson has never had like a staff person that I'm aware of. They've always been volunteer run, although many of the volunteers were working for international NGOs or justice organizations. So that was how it moved forward a lot of the time. We've also had moments where we're like, is it worth doing this anymore? Can people still come here for a weekend once a year and support the actions and the work that we do? And are people volunteer burnout and all of those things that I think probably happen all the time? But I think the last 10 years, people and organizations have had to relook at how they do the work they do and find ways of collaborating and working together that aren't exactly new, but in a new way. And I think, for example, Arson, we're part of the America's Policy Group of the Canadian Council for International Cooperation. And, for example, that space for us is really important because it allows us to connect with other organizations across the country that are doing solidarity and justice work in the Americas and Canada. And so I think for us, it's become really clear, like, alone, we can't do this work. And I think most of the other people sitting at the table are still part of more formal NGOs. But I think that idea that we're all kind of in this together (laughs) has become more, I feel it anyways, I feel it's like more and more evident that there's a need for a common struggle from here, even if we don't all agree on everything, that there's points where we can work together and our analysis around some of the things that are happening, especially around trade and mining, where it becomes really clear, like, this is something we have to work on together. So I want to get into more of the concrete details of the work that Arson does. But before we do that, let's maybe set one more piece of context. And that's Canadian complicity. That one of the reasons why it's important for people in Canada to be engaged in international solidarity work is the fact that the Canadian state and Canadian corporations are involved in a lot of the awful things that popular movements in the global south are struggling against. So talk a little bit about that Canadian complicity. In 2004, I was on a delegation. It was a two-week educational delegation organized by Breaking the Silence. And on the last day, we heard a presentation by a famous political cartoonist. 
He also was the founder of one of Guatemala's first environmental organizations. It's called Madre Selva. He told us all about a mining project that was happening in northern Guatemala, and it was owned by Glamis Gold at the time. When we all heard what was happening in northern Guatemala in a place called San Marcos, we all were like, this is a Canadian mine? Like, there was still this image of, we're Canadian, we're like the good people, you know? And I, I definitely grew up thinking that. I think that was part of who I was. You know, I went to Canada Day celebrations, and I was proud of being Canadian. And I think when he began to tell that story of how the land had been essentially stolen from people, the lies and the deception just kept going deeper and deeper. So when I heard about that, it impacted me, and I came home, and I started reading about Canadian mining, which I honestly, before that, didn't know that much about. A year after that, I went to Guatemala as an intern. I was on a bus one day, coming down from a city in northern Guatemala, and our bus stopped because something was happening ahead of us. It became clear that there was a major protest happening because a community was trying to block a large piece of machinery that would be used to build the mine in San Marcos. We were there all day. We ended up getting off the bus. People were very angry. The Guatemalan government rounded up close to a 1,000 riot police, military, dressed as though they were going to war, and escorted this machine through the highlands of Guatemala. And as it was happening, there was essentially a riot happening. We ended up running into the cornfield. There was tear gas everywhere. People were hurt. There was a man killed that day. And one of the things that had happened, I was waiting in this long lineup in a store to use the only public phone around. And this man turned to me and he said, so where are you from? And I didn't see any other foreigner at all that day. I remember quickly looking up on the wall and there was this handmade poster that said, Canadians go home. And I said, oh, I'm from Canada. And I kind of tried to say it low and keep a low profile. And he said, oh, so you must be the boss of this mining operation. And he started to laugh. And, you know, I was like 23. So obviously he was joking. But he said, no, but seriously, if I were you, if anybody asks you, you should just tell them that you're American. And... I remember that moment, and I've heard since then other stories similar to that. I remember I looked down, (laughs) I had this little change purse, and I had one of those lapel pins that had Canada, and it was stuck on my change purse. And I remember slowly taking it off and putting it inside. And I feel like that's still been really symbolic to me of how I feel about my identity now as a Canadian. And this goes much deeper now as I understand better so many things that have happened also in Canada, of genocide of Indigenous people here. And as I have grown and learned, I think, you know, I've definitely never taken that pin out of my change purse. I don't even know where that pin would be, but that idea of like this national pride is not something that I even really think about anymore. It was transformative for me to think about who I am in this world. So that moment in 2005 was definitely something that has stayed with me. And since then, being in Guatemala, working really closely with those same communities, you know, now that mine that I heard about in 2004 has been operating for 10 years now, and the impacts are devastating. That experience in Guatemala has been really profound for me, but it's also helped me when I read about mining in the Philippines, or I read about mining in Honduras, or Chiapas, or El Salvador, or any country. This is like 
the colonial history that we're making (laughs) and how we're living out colonization today, I think, as Canadians, is through mining. So I think about who I am and how I'm part of that every day. The stories that we hear are just repeated over and over and over again. And I guess what's overwhelming is the level of impunity with which Canadian mining companies are often working and the lack of will that our government still has in trying to make them more accountable for what they're doing overseas and in Canada, to be honest. Tell me more about the activities of the Atlantic Regional Solidarity Network and maybe start with the annual gathering that you host. The arson event usually happens every fall. It's a three-day gathering, usually held in Tatamagosh, Nova Scotia, which is a small community on the north shore of Nova Scotia, where there's an adult education and learning center. It's a space where we come together. It's been a place of transformation for many years. We try always to have a Latin American guest speak. In the fall, for example, we had Francisco Ramirez here, who's a Colombian union activist and who's very involved with Canadian mining and gas companies working in Colombia. In the past, we've had people like Berta Oliva from the Organization of the Disappeared in Honduras speak. We've had guests from Guatemala, from mining-affected communities. We've had Haiti justice activists. Usually, the weekend is based on the message of our speaker, and it's an opportunity to give updates. So basically, Arson has members throughout the Maritimes to also do work throughout the year related to solidarity and justice work in Latin America. So we come together to also talk about what's happening throughout the Maritimes. You know, we organize a march, or we organize a vigil, or people kind of share what they've been doing. And we plan actions for the rest of the year. We sometimes have another speaking tour in the spring, so we talk about that. I think one of the great parts of that weekend is also because it's three days. And what's really been important is we are really spread out over the Maritimes. And so coming together to reconnect and build our own community has been, I think, also the strength of arson and the strength of moving the work forward. People feel deeply committed to the work in Latin America, and they also enjoy the company and the community of being part of a network of people who are working on those issues. Personal connection, I think, is what the strength of that network is and why it's so important for us to have three days a year where we can be together, debate, discuss, plan, hear from people on the ground, and that's really what that weekend's all about. As I was saying, so we often show documentaries and have like public screenings with discussions. We write urgent action. So, for example, recently in Honduras, when Berta Cáceres, an indigenous Lenca woman, was murdered, we really activated our network in the sense of getting the message out that this had happened and then calling people to action. So we would be responding to urgent actions, writing letters, signing petitions, contacting their own MPs. That's one of the ways that we're most effective in terms of like mobilizing people. We write articles or editorial pieces for magazines, commenting on what's happening in the region and 
the role that Canada has to play in that. I mentioned that we're part of the America's Policy Group, so that's a space also where we can plan in terms of joint actions across Canada. So if there's, you know, an organizational sign-on letter or lobbying that's done in Ottawa, we're not there, but we can have input into, like, what that looks like. We all look forward to having a speaker or two from Latin America be here not only for our gathering, which is in the fall, but also we usually do a speaking tour in the Maritimes where someone, you know, can speak in universities, they can meet with MPs, they can meet with unions, they can meet in other community spaces to talk about what the issues are and how that's related to Canadians. We do things, for example, like vigils. For example, when Bertha was killed, members of arson participated in organized vigils, denouncing her murder and calling for justice. We're often present in marches related to not only issues in Latin America, but how they're connected here. So, for example, around migration, around refugees. I think arson is like a space for people to connect to those issues. And, yeah, so, you know, being part of panel discussions and trying to just be part of the debate, kind of what I was saying before, the counter narrative to what's sometimes in our more mainstream media, trying to get a message out of what's the other side of that story. I'm sure there are lots of different perspectives on this question, but what are at least some of the policy changes that need to happen here in Canada in order to begin to address some of the harms caused by the Canadian state and Canadian corporations in the Global South, and to really move forward in enacting solidarity with peoples in the Global South? I think as a nation, we have learned a lot through the TRC report and the recommendations. Uh, And the TRC is, of course, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, which was the national process that examined the colonial legacy of residential schools. And this government has said that they want to change that dialogue. They want to talk about sovereignty. They want to have a different kind of relationship with Indigenous people. And I think that we haven't seen that happening really in a meaningful way yet. You know, we talk about free prior and informed consent, which is the right of every Indigenous community before projects like mines and pipelines are built. And their right to say no. If there was a policy, an effective policy that said, we respect communities' rights to say no, and then a way of implementing that. But what I've experienced, for example, is that they don't really want to talk about SPIC or they talk about consultation, which is not the same. And they talk about, you know, discussion groups or they talk about bringing people together and sitting them at the table to talk about SPIC. But really with the idea that they're eventually going to move people to say yes, you know, yes, maybe with more money or yes with other conditions. But the inherent right of people to say no is not on the table. And I think given what we know and we know our history is here and how that's being perpetuated in other countries in Latin America and around the world, we have to start there. We have to start saying people's right to say no is like fundamental. That would have an impact and that would obviously really deeply impact who we are and who we are as a nation and who we are as Canadians. But the conversation hasn't been around that. When we talk about free trade or the TPP, there's a space for dialogue. Or This government's talked a lot about 
engaging with people and having consultation, but hearing from people and then not actually doing anything about it isn't a meaningful consultation. (laughs) So I think it's challenging. Like I think we have to think about how we change our worldview or how we at least start to respect other worldviews. Because we have to, you know, we, we know what the state not only of communities affected by extractive industries, but of our world and of our climate and of our future. And so I think that if we focus policy on respecting other worldviews and the right to say no and free prior and informed consent, then we would be having different conversations. And they would be difficult, but they are necessary if we're going to change the way we've been doing things as part of our colonial history. What does the network have coming up in the next while? There's a couple things happening. We're having a young man from Guatemala coming to the Maritimes in June. So he'll be speaking in New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island in Nova Scotia. And he's an 18-year-old guy from a community that's been impacted by Tahoe Resources Mine. And he's part of a youth group that was created actually through their church, but later kind of bringing in all kinds of people to talk about mining, but also to talk about the environment, to talk about what's happening with their water, especially. His name is Franklin Valenzuela, and I'm really, yeah, really excited he's going to be here. He's going to talk about what they're doing. A member of their group, whose name is Topacio Reynoso, was murdered two years ago connected, we believe, to her struggle and her family's struggle against mining in her community. So we're really excited that Franklin's going to be here to talk about Topacio and also her light and her example of struggle and how that's really helping mobilize more young people to be part of the conversation. So I think that's really, really exciting. And I think the ongoing work We're part of a national group of people that sent a delegation to Honduras recently for an international gathering to commemorate the life of Berta Casares and demand justice. So I'm really excited also that Kathy Martin, who's a Mi'kmaq filmmaker and the Nancy's chair in women's studies at Mount St. University in Halifax, will be back in the Maritimes after that delegation. And we're planning to do hopefully an event with Kathy to talk about that experience and what the struggle is looking like right now and what are some of the challenges for Hondurans as they continue to demand justice for that, but also beyond that, how do they work for their rights as Indigenous people against hydropower dams there. So those are two things, Kathy's return and presentation about Honduras and then Franklin, who will be here kind of doing a cross-maritimes tour about mining in this community, I think are two things that are happening in the next couple of months that are really exciting for us. Spaces like Arson are really important because it can be a space where you come for the first time and you don't know anything, or you're just interested or curious, and it's a space where you can keep going back to to continue to question those things because it is complicated. The first time I went to an arson meeting in 2004, I would say I was pretty naive, but it was at that space where I was able to actually have a conversation. And I think there aren't always spaces that exist. And that's why arson, that space, is really important. You have been listening to my interview with Jackie McVicker of the Atlantic Regional Solidarity Network. To learn more about their work, go to arsncanada.blogspot.ca. That's arsncanada.blogspot.ca. 
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.